hello and welcome back to another episode of Armchair Analysts, the only podcast that instructs centre-backs to overlap. My name is Cameron McDonald and I've spent the last three years working as an FA licensed intermediary here in the UK. My co-host, Rupert Meadows, has written and broadcasted about all things football on platforms such as TalkSport, Radio and Junior Sport. But above all else, we're fans. Yeah, thanks for that, Cam. The transfer window rumbles on with some strong signings for Premier League clubs announced this week. And equally importantly, the rumour mill continues to churn out some exciting, if not necessarily trustworthy, news. And you can tell that the Premier League is right around the corner because we had the Community Shield last week. Indeed we did. A nice little taster of the 2021 campaign, with Liverpool the league champions taking on the FA Cup winners Arsenal in yet another showdown for them at Wembley. Um, And they clearly took this experience to the game at Wembley because the London club emerged the victors. They did indeed, and and I'm sure Arsenal fans will definitely be hoping that it is a nice little taster of the 2021 campaign. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was it was it was an interesting game. It was quite exciting from the get go. I think Andy Robertson bent in a really lovely uh, free kick, as is his wont, and Virgil Van Dijk headed it in to to open up the scoring. Except it didn't because it was it was rightfully called offside. But then a few minutes later, um, Aubameyang scored his fifth goal in, in his last three games at Wembley, um, which was a fantastic goal. Really, really lovely bit of talent, but almost overshadowed by the ball that he got to get into that position from, from Bukayo Saka. Mm-hmm. Another assist for a, a very exciting young player who has been left out of the England lineup. He has indeed, as we discussed last week, and, and maybe it is, you know, one of those things where he has looked very, very good, but it's only been probably about 30 games that, he, that he's played so far, for, that he's started at least. Um, so I can maybe understand why... Um, why Southgate's not not gone for that. But he did have a great game, looked really, really confident, nearly got a second assist as well for, for Eddie Nketiah. Um, but after this first goal, Arsenal sort of just worked classic Arsenal and left the game wide open. Um, and eventually fresh legs came on in the form of Takumi Minamino and levelled the game. Yeah, I think, um, you know, obviously, yes, Arsenal allowed the team to claw back their way into the game. But you got to say that they were dominant for long periods of that game. Um and they looked on top for for large parts of it. Yeah, it was quite a good game in ter- and like a quite a good quality of game in terms of it did go in these big drastic phases of there were parts when Arsenal looked on top right after they scored the goal they were really going out for Liverpool and then the second half happened and Liverpool got back on top and they were really going for it. Mane, you know, was only denied by a really nice save from Emi Martinez. Um and I think maybe because this Community Shield game has come like all, both these teams were playing two weeks ago. So I think because of that, it's, yeah. it's almost not like players sort of, you know, wiping the sleep out of their eyes as they get ready for the season again. They're all still in that zone. Um, but as a part, part of that, because we didn't have that large break, both sides were feeling some, some big absences. Arsenal um, didn't have Nicola Pepe or Alexandre Lacazette because they're both under quarantine currently. Um, and that meant that Eddie Nketiah yeah. was the one who was taking that central role. Um, and, as mentioned just now in their sort of atta- Arsenal's attacking periods, he got in some really good positions, but didn't quite use, you know, he, he didn't finish them and sort of showed his inexperience at the top level and, and being able to play in these games. Um, so so they definitely missed out there. Liverpool also had arguably even greater misses without having um, Jordan Henderson and Trent Alexander-Arnold, who are both just massive players, particularly considering that in this game it fell to Neko Williams and later Joe Gomez to deal with Aubameyang on the, on the left side for Arsenal. Yeah, and he really struggled um, throughout the game and, and gave the Arsenal forward much too much space for uh, at least the opener and then for um, times throughout. And yeah, it, it was interesting. I think Eddie Nketiah, yes, you're right, he doesn't have the experience yet, but this is how you get that experience. And the Community Shield is an interesting one because, yes, it's a piece of silverware and, yes, it's a great way to start your season, but it's not really as important as the FA Cup. It's not really as important as... Carabao Cup or, the, or of course not the Premier League so mm. it's it's a pretty nice uh, area to to kind of build out your experience yeah it definitely was and I don't think you know any, anyone would ring him out to drive for not being game ready but it, it's he, he didn't have the same sort of um, game readiness as you might see from someone like uh, Mason Greenwood, for example, who, given the opportunity, has just come out and been scoring goals. Eddie Nketiah has, you know, he had a, a relatively successful spell at Leeds like early, early last season and hasn't really found his feet massively uh, in, the, in the Arsenal team. So maybe it looks like it's another loan for him is the way that he gets that match readiness and, and sort of moves into in, into men's game at the top level. Yeah, I think so. I mean, of course, you know, he will have the benefit of being able to study Lacazette in training and maybe Aubameyang if he stays um, 
but I think probably he will gain more from going out on loan. I uh, think so. If he can go to a yeah, and if he can go to a smaller Premier League club, I think that would be really positive for him. Mm. Yeah, I mean, Leeds now have just signed Rodrigo, but they were already had a, a good relationship with him, so that, that could have been a destination. And I suppose still could be um, if they were playing with a, a system that accommodated that. But both sides um, missing some players. They're both relatively strong teams, but maybe not full strength. So it doesn't necessarily tell us how they'll perform next season, um, particularly because last year's Community Shield saw Liverpool lose to Man City, and then sure. they destroyed them over the course of a season. <laughs> Um, but I do think that this told us a little bit about the reinforcements that both clubs need um, before the season starts. Um, Liverpool are a team that, when their best 11 are out, they're just a force of nature. But a few times we have seen them stumble, like today, and that's usually been when Henderson's been out. Of, uh, you know, been out. Um, and so they definitely need to be thinking about a replacement for him. Yeah, I think so. Um, definitely they could, they could do with some, some depth in midfield. Uh, <laughs> How would you feel about maybe James Ward-Prowse? I mean... One of the first names that sprang to my mind as you said it. Uh, he, I mean, joking aside, he would actually, I think, be quite a savvy purchase. He's yeah. only 27 or so. He, as we said last season, last week, is pretty much the same player in miniature. Um, just, just like a dynamic ball of energy. He's a little mm. bit more technically gifted than Jordan Henderson. Um, maybe has a little bit more experience to gain in terms of keeping the tempo ticking over and being integral to his side's defensive stability. But yeah, I think, you know, could be a good signing. They definitely need someone for that role because they do have a lot of, like Fabinho and, and, and Nabikita, but they, they don't perform the same role as Henderson does and they don't really have anyone who does that. And it, it sounds weird to say, but Henderson has kind of become almost Liverpool's most important player, um, certainly in the sense that when we've seen Salah have a bad game, Mane steps up, or when we've seen you know Van Dijk have a bad game, the, the midfield can cover for him. When Henderson's out, even if all the other players are there, they just don't seem to tick at the same sort of... If you know what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean. And I think the main issue is that you kind of kind of skirted around this point, which is that Liverpool do have backup and they do have solid backup, but they don't have like-for-like players that can drop in and substitute for the same system. Mm. You can't just put Divock Origi up top instead of Roberto Firmino and expect the unit to operate in the same way. And you can't expect to just put Wijnaldum or Naby Keita or any of their midfielders like Fabinho in to replace Jordan Henderson and expect the team to perform in the same way because they're all very different players and that's great for tactical flexibility but it's not good for you know when you're just trying to chop and change one player here and there to get some some rest for the key players. Yeah, and especially with this season coming up, I mean, this is maybe good. I think it's going to be a very interesting season again because we are coming straight back in. Players are not going to have had a lot of rest. Granted, maybe the coronavirus break is going to have acted like what normally is the winter break, but it's going to be straight into game week in, week out after a very busy end of the season as well. I would not be surprised at all to see a lot higher um, rate of injuries and just general fatigue over the, over the course of the season. And so for a team like Liverpool that don't necessarily have like-for-like like backups, it could really make them struggle as compared to a side like Man City, who just they, they do have just benches plural of players ready to take the, the mantle. Got, yeah, rotation for days. Uh, yeah, you're right. I think it's not something that's going to be felt at the beginning of the season because all the players are still pretty much ready. If anything, the Premier League season is probably going to start a lot quicker than it normally does. In yeah. Every every team is already at that level. Uh, no pre-season required or minimal pre-season required. But yeah, I'm sure come winter time when the games are coming thick and fast, um, or it's kind of January, February periods, I, I'm sure we could see a lot of injuries being picked up as yeah the the long-term fatigue starts to take its toll. I think so. And injuries often are what inform, um, you know, league campaigns. I think Liverpool on their day probably beat anyone in the league, but, it's, you know, beating someone on their day is not how you win the title. It's about over the course of a season. And I do wonder if, you know, yes, they didn't buy anyone major last window ever and they're a fantastic team, but are they maybe resting on their laurels a little bit here? While Man City are sort of picking up players here and there, not even thinking about the you know potential Messi question, but just picking up players like Ferran Torres and just little reinforcements here and there to make sure that if Aguero gets injured, they're not going to feel that one as, 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 as uh, you know, poorly as, as they usually do. Or if Mares gets injured, they're going to be able to have someone to come in for him. Um, Whereas Liverpool seem to sort of just be almost working on the assumption that their first eleven is going to be fit for 50 games. 
For sure, and again, like the same problem is going to be there if they do sign Thiago, because again, he's another different midfielder. Mm. So I think that it's an interesting question because you know, the, an over-reliance on individual players, yes, is a real problem, but to have a squad with good depth and with different types of players is not necessarily a bad thing. So one situa- one like solution would be to buy more players that can replace players when needed. Or another solution would be to try and adapt the system to make sure that if one player goes out and someone else comes in, it's not the be-all, end-all. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. What? What? What are the other? Because they do have a lot of. It, it's the problem isn't necessarily having a lack of bodies at the squad, but it's just bodies that can do the job of a Jordan Henderson or of, for example, a centre back. Because in this game, um, Neko Williams was struggling quite a bit at right back against the Bamiang. So Joe Gomez went over to right back, and Liverpool's only centre back on the bench was a seventeen-year-old. So they had to bring Fabinho back to play as an auxiliary centre back, and that kind for a, for a club that's just won the league and the Champions League back to back, you'd think they'd have more options. Um, yeah, it does seem a little wonky, doesn't it? It it does seem a little weird, and I wonder That's if the kind of thing that you would associate with like an Arsenal or a Chelsea, not a Liverpool sure. or a... yeah, like in one of their crisis years. So so yeah, I mean, I'm sure Liverpool will get off to the season like they finished last season, but whether or not they'll be able to keep up the excellence at the same level or deal with the traditional you know fatigue of a season, especially if it's sure. amplified as it will be this year, remains to be seen. So what would you say a, a new centre back, a new right back, a new midfielder? Uh, yes, I, I think it's a little difficult. Um, they seem to quite like Neko Williams. I don't think that he's ever going to play unless Alexander-Arnold is, is injured like he was today. So I don't think they massively need to worry about that. And they, similarly, they have um, the Greek fella, Simakis, um, over on the left side. I think the two main glaring ones, to me, it seems to be, are just centre-back and a midfielder in that mould of Jordan Henderson who can recycle possession and keep the midfield ticking along. Yeah. Um, but looking at the other team, who... Um, the winners, Arsenal, they'll be very happy to have picked up another piece of silverware under Arteta, albeit largely a symbolic one more than anything else. Um, but the side's still a far cry from challenging domestically. Many of the players have seen massive improvement under Arteta, that new management. Um, and it could be said that them finishing eighth was largely due to the calamitous stewardship of um, Unai Emery. But they'll still, there's still a lot to do. They still need a lot more to get those better results. It's true. I mean, so one thing that I would say is that kind of... Um... Arsenal finished fourth in the 2020 table. If mm. you look at just the matches in the 20, in 2020 year, they are performing a lot higher than eighth place would suggest. Yeah. So I do think that momentum is going in the right way. And obviously two pieces of silverware in two, three months is a great sign as well of progress. But yeah, I do think that they are lacking a couple of key signings before they're ready to challenge solidly for top four. Well, th- I mean, this is the, th- it's the sort of... Um the duality of, or, or sorry, what's the word I'm looking for? The sort of, there's an upside and a downside every time Arsenal win an FA Cup. Because every time they win an FA Cup, yes, it's a great boost for them as a club and it's an amazing trophy to win for any team. But you get the idea that also Stan Kroenke is sat on his ranch somewhere going, ah, another trophy, no more no more money needed to be invested. So Yeah, there's real shades of like um, late Arsene Wenger uh, years, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. And, and also just per your point, like, yes, Arsenal were fourth in the... Uh, you know, 2020 table, and it has been a long time since Arsenal have won a title, so it, it's forgiven for not even thinking about that. But fourth is not really, if, if Arsenal were visualising ideally where they want to be, and certainly Arteta has sort of quite grandiosely said he's going to be challenging for the Champions League in three years, but they, they don't want to be fourth, they want to be winning. Sure, but I mean, they're not, they're not the traditional powerhouses of the Premier League era. They've won a couple of titles, but they're not Man United and they're not they haven't been Chelsea for 15 years. Um, so, yeah, I think it's ambitious, but it is ambitious. Yeah, but it's ambitious that's got to be, if you want to be ambitious, you've got you've to back that up. And they've had all these links with exciting players. Thomas Partey, Hussein Aouar would be two massive, massive signings that everyone sort of wants to get their hands on. Gabriel Magalhaes seems to apparently be over the line, but it still hasn't been announced. And they haven't announced any signing this window beyond the free transfer of 32-year-old Willian. A good signing, I think. Um, he'll be he'll be good for Arsenal in the season to come. Thomas Parsi, I think, would be a great addition. Um, I think he'd really help to solidify that Arsenal midfield. Hmm. He really would, and I think they just need a few 
it, not even necessarily some sort of amazing 150 million pound player, but just a few intelligent signings, 45 million pounds here, 50 million pounds there. And you're talking about changing a team that's, you know, really, really inconsistent. Someone aside that can maybe grind out a little bit more of a, a performance they can be proud of over the course of a season. And I think Arteta can do that. I think he's the manager to take the club forward, but he can't do it without the right tools. Absolutely. Um, at the back end of the team, though, Emmy Martinez puts another tick in his column for you know, the battle with him and uh, Bern Leno for yeah. number one spot. Yeah, he had another really, really good game. Kept Mane out in one instance where it was a very tight angle and he got down very well. It's a it's a nice problem to have for Arsenal, having to choose between two keepers. And maybe now that they've confirmed that European football, they can sort of share it between the two and have one as the cup keeper and one as the league keeper. But um, yeah, I mean, I don't think every, anyone has a definite answer on who's going to be the number one when the season starts. For sure. And, and I remember last time we spoke about it, we kind of suggested that maybe... Emi Martinez might be looking to leave Arsenal because he's getting to the latter stages of his career. I think he's 27 and mm. he might want consistent first team football. But it feels like the dynamic is, is a positive one. It feels like he would like to stay and it also feels like he's maybe above Leno at the moment in the pecking order. It's, well, I mean, he's had the benefit of just having that really good run. And Leno is still coming back from injury. He was on the bench for this game, but he's still, you know, he hasn't played for however many months, four or five sure. months. So, you know, he's, he's not going to be thrown straight in for a final, even if it is just a community shield final. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know who we'll be seeing as the regular Arsenal number one keeper next season. I think, you know, Arteta will be making that decision over the coming weeks, depending on how preseason goes. But today, uh, sorry, this game was a great, um, a great bid from Emi Martinez to be the number one. It sure was. And uh, speaking of players that may or may not remain at their current clubs, we move on to the Messi situation with Barcelona. Yeah, I mean, one that broke just two hours or so before we started talking um, about football last week and one that's continued to evolve and just gets crazier and crazier every day. Something this morning about not turning up for training, coronavirus testing has been missed. It's it's looking like it could turn into a really nasty, ugly situation if, if they're not careful. It really is. And yeah, so just to provide a little bit of background information about what has happened so far this week before we get into a discussion about it. Um, it's been pretty much all but confirmed, despite him not having any public interviews, that Messi does want to leave Barcelona. And it's not just a ploy to get the president fired. He wants out, uh, which is understandable, given that they're still in free fall as a club since the thrashing 8-2 by Bayern. And what that represented, which is that Barcelona are a far cry from the team they were 8-10 years ago. Um, one thing that I would point out as well is that PK's interview after the Bayern game was one of a defeated man. You know, he mm. said like change was needed at all levels. If he had to go, he had to go. Those are not fighting words. Well, it it seems like the the sheen, the magical sheen that surrounds a club like Barcelona or Real Madrid or even sort of like a Manchester United to a degree has started to fade a little bit. Messi's announced he wants to leave, and all of a sudden it's looking like Rakitic is off to Sevilla, Vidal is off to Inter. The players have seen that Messi's jumping off the sinking ship, and he's the last thing that's been keeping it afloat. So they're all off too. Yeah, of course. And um, Vidal is the other person that had a really interesting interview this week. Uh, he came out and said, and I quote. The last three years are not what a team like Barcelona deserves. The best team in the world cannot have 13 professional players. You cannot always win with DNA. And that is scathing, to say the least. Oh, for, for a club that at the time you're still with, is, um... exactly, that's not yeah. great. And, you know, by DNA, meaning kind of the special source, club culture and all that. Yeah. And um, yeah, these two interviews do really not paint the picture of a club that is in good shape. Um, but moving on to the ongoing conflict with Messi, um, it's all surrounded w around a couple of key points that will start to develop in the next few weeks. Um, yeah, so we mentioned the clause in his contract last week, but if you want to just go over that again and, and how that's been uh, interpreted over the last few days. Sure. So uh, it's all around a clause in Messi's contract, which would have allowed him to terminate it and leave for free if he had informed the club by June 10th. Now, obviously, it's not June 10th anymore, but Messi's lawyers are arguing that because that June 10th date was 
related to the end of the season mm-hmm. and the season was pushed back, then that means that the clause two should have been pushed back. Um, right. And in a shocking turn of events, <laughs> which surprised no one, I'm sure, La Liga have sided with Barcelona uh, and said that Messi's release clause, which is at 700 million, is still valid. So Messi is either at this point worth zero or 700 mil. Which is um, quite a difference. Quite the difference, yeah. And Barcelona, understandably, do not want Messi to go anywhere and are unwilling to negotiate. Um, the meeting with Ronald Koeman, the new manager, apparently did not go well. Messi didn't like the plans that Koeman laid out for Barcelona's new season. And as you said, Messi has now failed to appear for the COVID testing before pre-season and now pre-season. Um, the manager and the sporting director have both been sacked. Uh, the president has come out and said that he will resign if it means that Messi can stay. And yeah, it's just all kind of collapsing. But as you said, it's a really potentially toxic situation in that, you know, clubs do not, it doesn't go well for clubs that try to demand that their players stay. It yeah, really- I mean, the, the thing with Barcelona, why it's so difficult for Barcelona as a club is that their interests with Lionel Messi go really beyond what happens on the pitch. I mean, Barcelona are in the midst of renewing contracts with two of their biggest sponsors besides Nike, which is Rakuten and Beko. Um, and without Messi as their team's franchise player, it's a lot harder for them to negotiate sponsorship deals. Currently, all these different companies come in because they want to see you know, Messi on the shirt or Messi in an advert for them. He's a face like Ronaldo or like a Neymar or, you know, the... the Tiger Woods or, or Lewis Hamilton from other sports, they're the, the big faces that you want to sell your brand. Uh, and if Barcelona don't have that, it just hurts them in a financial way. Already, they're fourth in the world when it comes to shirt sales. So when Messi leaves, this could hit them at an organisational level. Um, Bartomeu has already predicted a €300 million Euro drop in revenues for the coming campaign, which means that Barcelona will need to lose at least €150 million Euros off their wage bill in order to meet with um, the strict financial controls in the Liga. So they're a club that the finances are all over the place. The one Hail Mary they have is the expensive um, sponsorship contrast that they have with these two uh, companies, Rakuten and Beko, which incidentally uh, ran from the time they were signed in 2017 to the end date of Messi's contract, um, which is, you know, arguably coincidentally, but I would do say it's mean, not coincidentally. Do you mean Messi's contract ending next season, or do you yes. mean it stipulates when Messi's gone, we're gone? No, no, no. They, they were signed with Barcelona, ending at the same date that just not when Messi leaves, quote unquote, they just happened to end on the same date that Lionel Messi's contract with with Barcelona ended. So, you know, you could say that's just because that's when the financial year of football ends, or you could say this is because they've got a very um, vested interest in being partnered with Barcelona because they have Lionel Messi. I mean, certainly the CEO of Rakuten, when he announced the sponsorship, was mentioning Messi by name, not the club. Um, So it, it could be not just bad for Barcelona in terms of performance in you know against the opposition in La Liga, but financially it could be absolutely harrowing for them. Oh, of course. And I think, you know, my instinct is that the club are taking this stance because they expect that they might be able to get maybe 200, 300 million for Messi, not mm. 700, because that's ludicrous, and just anything but zero. If they can get in that region 200, 300, then they can at least offset the losses that they'll receive from losing Messi and, you know, it'll free up a lot of space in the um, uh, the wages bill and with a couple of different signings leaving as well, they should be able to hopefully bring in some new talent and, I guess, usher in the, the new generation of La Masia players, you know, build up Ansu Fati, build up um, other youth. But yeah, it's 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 a big moment for them. Well, that's the problem, really, is that they haven't. And again, we touched on the this is how why they started to fail on the pitch, but they haven't been building up the the youth prospects. A few years ago, it seemed like when we were having the whole sort of like Messi, Javi, and Iniesta triangle that all eyes were on La Masia, and there was sort of a new exciting player coming through every five minutes. Whether it was um, De Lafeu, whether it was the um, Korean player who's now um, Valencia, um, Mark Bartra. <laughs> Uh, Park Su One, I think it is. Yeah, no, I was uh, saying someone else. Yeah, um, but 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 yeah, like all these players that that we're coming through, we haven't really, aside from Ansu Fati, if all of these major players leave, who 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 are the fans going to get on the back of their shirts? Like potentially, like Ansu Fati and 
Is he, is he going to sell, you know, <laughs> uh, 50 million euros worth of shirts? Probably not. Well, yeah, but I mean, I think apparently Kuman's plan is to get rid of a lot of the dead weight around the club. And, and that includes players like Luis Suarez. So mm. it's a complete rebuild, unlike maybe any that we've seen in recent years. Yeah, I mean, I, that, and I think that is the way that this is the only way they can go now. It's the best possible route for them. But they've put themselves in a position where it's very difficult to do that. Um, you know, they might they might do it, but they'll have to weather two or three years of just no money coming in, or certainly a lot less money than usual. It's going to be really tough, and as you said, those extra pressures financially are going to prove crucial in how it all plays out. Um, but the flip side of it is, you know. Let the debate for where Messi will end up keep on rolling. It's one that I'm loving. Yeah, I mean, well, this is the whole thing. Again, it comes down to this contract situation because last time we talked about the kind of clubs that could be in the conversation if he could leave on a free and how it opened it up to as many as 20 teams around the world who could sort of find the money to, to pay him 100 million euros for two years of his time. But now if there, there is the conversation of having to also pay 100, 150, 200 million pounds up front, I mean, could it really be anyone but City or PSG? Well, so I think to me, yes, there are only two clubs that I could see it actually working out well at. One of them is Man City. PSG, for me, I don't think would necessarily work very well because um, A, PSG are Nike and Messi is an Adidas um, athlete. And B, I don't think that Thomas Tuchel quite has the pull required to get Messi on board. He's just not an exciting dynamic manager in the sense in in the vein of someone that Messi would be excited to work with. I can see that. Although so so yeah the, the Thomas Tuchel thing is a good point. I can see how certainly if with Man City, you know, they've got his old his old mentor Pep Guardiola there, so that's just enticing off the bat and Tuchel maybe is is less of a Again, something we talked about last week, how people have got really excited about Hansi Flick. And then when people talk about PSG, it's almost like, who is Thomas Tuchel? Um, but on, on just on the, the Nike thing, I mean, PSG are a Nike club, but so are Barcelona currently. Their kits are done by Nike. So I know that sometimes it's a bit weird for players to cross the aisle, but often with a player of Messi's size, it's not, it's not unworkable. For sure. But I think when we're talking about, you know, Messi's astronomical wage bills, you know, there are suggestions that, Adidas would be willing to subsidise those wages, but obviously they wouldn't do that if it was at a, a Nike club. So, yeah, you know, PSG are financially large enough for that not to matter, but it is still a mark in the wrong direction. Um, I would say the other main contenders to Man City are potentially emerging at the moment, Juventus. Um, I think Which, of course, would mean we would... would and just have the insane combination of Ronaldo and Messi in the same team. Which, I mean, if that doesn't capture your imagination, I don't know what does. But, yeah, I mean, I think this could make sense for a lot of reasons. The main one being that I don't think that Juventus would have any financial qualms with investing in Leo Messi, given the surge in the, the value of the club when Ronaldo joined for $100 million. Um, I think the value of the club more than doubled in the two-month period after he moved, hitting over a billion euros. And mm. shirt sales in two months went from 19 million to 301 million. It's I mean, unreal. there you go. And as we talked about, Leo Messi as a global brand is maybe even bigger than Ronaldo, especially in Asia. Um, and, you know, China put a lot of money into... Not don't put a lot of money into it, but China is really like a big follower of Barcelona and also Messi and the mm. suggestion that you know with Messi gone then they might be a little less interested and start buying less shirts um, for Barcelona but Messi has such a such a big global brand and he is the biggest star in world football so yeah I, th I think that is also something to, to consider like it would be a big financial outlay you are also going to get a lot of that money back in terms of shirt sales and brand deals and just attracting those new fans from around the world um Oh yeah, Juventus have made so much money from it as a result. It was such a good financial decision from them to buy Messi, uh, to, to buy Ronaldo, and I could really see them considering the same thing. 
Um, yeah, well, I mean, it, it goes beyond, because obviously shirt sales are the one that is, is always cited, but it also goes as far as gate receipts. Barcelona last season, aside from the 110,000 socios who are part of the club, had 900,000 unique visitors. So this is all, you know, not season ticket holders, not people who live in the city, but people who are coming to come and see Barcelona. And yes, Barcelona are a historic club for reasons beyond Messi, but in this day and age, I'd be willing to bet that most people who turn up on a trip to go see Barcelona are most excited about seeing one person. Yeah, well, absolutely. Messi is synonymous with the club. And, you know, I went to watch Barcelona quite a few years ago and I was obviously excited to watch Messi. That was what I was most pumped for. Yes, it was cool to be in the camp now, but I just wanted to see the best player in the world play football. Exactly. Um, and if Juventus could have both Ronaldo and Messi at the club, I mean, <laughs> all, all the flights, so, there'd be like a massive surge of flights to Turin. Oh, of course. I mean... Personally, like when when Ronaldo joined Juventus, I probably watched Juventus highlights a little bit more than I did. If Ronaldo and Messi were in the same club, I would watch the games. I would buy the DVD. Do you know what I mean? I I would find a way to get those games. I'd be um, quite interested, almost not not so much for Juventus, but just for Italian football in general. It keeps the the sort of rumor about him into Milan is one that seemingly won't go away. I just think that'd be so interesting, just for Italian football as a whole. It's Italian football. 20, 30 years ago, you know, they, they were the best league. They had all the best teams. Milan and Inter and, and Juventus just could smack the Christ out of anyone. And these days, Juventus are a, are a good side, but I don't even know that they measure up to the, the Bayerns and the Reals and the, and the PSGs. Um, well, when was the last time they won the Champions League? Yeah, it's not been recent. Exactly, and, and, and there's a little bit of a glimpse of them coming back now. Certainly Inter are looking a bit better. Atalanta are looking a bit better. Napoli have you know, threatened to be a, a little bit... Of a, of a European presence, but this, if they had, it, it would sort of, you know, a massive player like this going to Inter, so many players whenever they join Barcelona or other clubs, for example, that have massive players say like, oh, it's for the chance to play with this player. And just even playing in the same league as Messi and Ronaldo would be so enticing to players that we might just see a surge of talent to Serie A from everywhere else. Yeah, it's true. Uh, the one thing that I would say is that I don't think Messi wants to play under Antonio Conte. I just don't think that there's any incentive there. He's not the right manager, but he he just he runs drills. He has a very rigid style of preparation for games, and I don't think he would be willing to change that style for Messi because that undermines his authority as a manager. I I don't think Messi wants to like stand out in his position like the day before the match and run drills. I think he wants to play football. That it's the twilight of his career, and he wants to go out with a bang. Probably, but then again, it's like we discussed last week. If he wants change, maybe that's the kind of change he needs. And he's had, you know, a club where he kind of calls the shots. So maybe being under a bit more of an authoritative manager could be an interesting experiment for him, and he might might relish that opportunity. He he might he might do, but from my perspective, again, in terms of like pros and cons column, that is a real mark in in the bad column for Inter, mm. and that I could see it being a deal breaker. Yeah, um, I, I definitely as well. Um, shall we have a quick break for some useless trivia before we move on to our second developing story of the month, uh, which uh, was, of course, Harry Maguire and the Mykonos situation. Uh, uh, shall I start? So I'm, I'm going to go for a Community Shield one because we had, obviously, the Community Shield uh, last weekend and it is traditionally the start of the 2021 season. But the stats of it as a trophy is always questioned. Usually fans of the size that have just won it are arguing that it counts while everyone else discounts it as a second-rate achievement. And managers have, you know, various managers have really opposing views. Alex Ferguson famously didn't consider, uh, he didn't consider it an achievement because it was a trophy that you win in only one game. And he said the same thing of the European Super Cup, um, which sure. is, you, you know, the game between the, the Champions League winners and the Europa yeah, League yeah. winners. Um, but Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola have both come to this country and expressed quite a bit of surprise about people not um, viewing it as an important game. They say that in Spain and Germany, they view it as like a real uh, clash of the titans, the team that's won the league and the team that's won the cup um, in a way that it isn't really seen here. However, we see things, I think, in the UK quite differently. Most people would say it's it's almost like a sub-trophy in, in, as compared to a real trophy, to the point where there have been several occasions where the finalists have gone as far as refusing to even take part in the final. Um, between 1971 and 1973, five of the six would-be finalists bunked off the chance to play in the game for other reasons. Double winners Arsenal started the trend in 1971, choosing to play a friendly in Rotterdam against Feyenoord. So the FA decided to have the FA Cup runners-up Liverpool take on the champions of the second division instead. Um, 
Then the following year, taking inspiration, Derby County and Leeds both decided to not play in the final, and the match was contested between Manchester City, who finished fourth place in the previous campaign, and the winners of the third division, Aston Villa. <laughs> And in 1973, Man City again was stepping in, uh, stepped in to be a finalist after Liverpool and Sunderland decided not to show up for the final. And Man City were defeated 1-0 by Burnley for their voluntary appearance. Um, so yeah, three years in a row, the finalists just said, no, thank you. We don't want to do the Community Shield. It's bizarre, isn't it? I, I, I love the idea that it's like, well, the show must go on. Who can play who? <laughs> I love I love that Man City got the nod twice. They were clearly because clearly they weren't the first port of call. Well, obviously not the first, but like even the second port of call. They were like, yeah, City are up for it. They'll do it. <laughs> that is a strange system. Yeah, it's weird because I can I kind of understand both perspectives. It's a it feels like a preseason match because the season hasn't started yet, and I don't know. I I can see why it's not quite the overwhelmingly exciting fixture that that it could be and is in other leagues. But I do also get the the point that, you know, it's it's the best versus the best. Yeah, I mean, that, that's that's what it's about. And that's exactly Klopp and Guardiola's point, that they're like, you've, you know, gone through on you, these respective campaigns. One of you has sort of fought tooth and nail over the course of a campaign. And one of you has sort of teetered through this competition where at any point a slip-up can see you knocked out. And you've both won these respective trophies and then it's just like right let's see who's really you know the the, the winner of, of this of this nation's football so that's you know how it could be viewed it isn't it seems yeah very strange um that's a i didn't know that about the history of the cup so that's that's a funny one yeah so interestingly it was that three years in a row of being bunked off that caused the fa to host the game at wembley um previous to that it was held at one of the home grounds of, of the participating sides and so the FA were like, oh, we've got to spruce this up somehow. Start holding it at Wembley. Make it make it bigger. And to be fair, it, it definitely does do that. You know, having it at Wembley does take it to that, that level of uh, cup final. Yeah, although, and this is a different conversation entirely, I do feel that Wembley's a bit overused. I would love if more games happened at, like, some of the great stadiums we have in this country, um, rather than just That's every fair. single game happening at Wembley. Yeah, I, w- I would quite like to see maybe... You know the the five biggest stadia in England had as as you know the the main areas for for these big games. Well, I remember the first ever football game I went to was the two thousand and one FA Cup semi final between Arsenal and Man United at Villa Park, and I, I remember just having such a great memory of um, driving all the way up to Birmingham with my dad. It was a great day out. All the fans that we knew who had made the journey as well, and it's just a whole. Whereas. Wembley still a great day out, but once you've gone there four or five times, because it's for every, it's not just for the finals, it's for the semi-finals, it's for the Community Shield. In normal years, Arsenal fans would have gone, you know, five times in the last few years. Um, so it, it's yeah, just yeah, and it's the Championship playoffs as well, and yeah, I I could see that. Um, but so so but yeah, so so that was uh, that was my useless bit of trivia about the Community Shield. What have you got? Nice. Well, I actually, um, I have a couple of statistics um, that I found just from the season that has just happened that I thought just just blew my mind in terms of um, just the numbers that they come up with. Um, So I've got three smaller statistics for you um, that I think capture how weird and impressive the season was. Um, The first one is Virgil van Dijk made almost 700 more passes than any other player in the Prem. That's Which I think crazy. Is unreal. Um, Three thousand two hundred fifty-nine passes, uh, and the second was Rodri with two thousand five hundred seventy-nine. I guess that speaks because he also played every minute of every game, didn't he? So, you sure, know, I but guess that still doesn't ta- make account for. You know, that's that's what like that's more than a fifth more. Yeah, no, no, no. Obviously, there's reasons beyond that, but I was just saying it speaks to like what a consistent presence he is in that side, and you know. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, whereas some some people rotate, but he's the first name on the team sheet every time. But even so, I mean, wow, that's that's very impressive. It's pretty nuts. Um, the other one which I quite enjoy is uh, Watford had twice as many managers as away wins, <laughs> with um, four different managers and only only two victories on the road. Exceptional. Um, which I, I quite enjoyed. And the third one was uh, in keeping with some of the conversations that we've had, um, Manchester United received more penalties at Carrow Road 
Norwich's stadium than Norwich did last season. <laughs> that one, I mean, that one is great, but it doesn't surprise me. The Van Dyke one, I was like, wow, really? The United one, I'm like, of course they did. <laughs> yeah, two to one. There you, there you go. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, speaking of United and their um, indiscretions on and off the pitch, uh, Harry Maguire and the situation that we did think was going to keep evolving and has kept evolving um, as this week the court hearing was, sorry, the verdict was was overturned. Um, do you want to go into, into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So um, previously Maguire had been convicted of a 21-month suspended sentence for assault of a police officer, swearing, resisting arrest, and attempted bribery. Um, And the appeal was lodged pretty much immediately, which means that he will have an opportunity to argue his innocence in court again at a higher level. Um, So I think the the story will probably start to die down a little bit for now unless new evidence comes to light, because Mm. the, the court date hasn't been assigned yet and it could be any time in the next two years so i think you know there's been a flurry of different news um coming to the front in the last few weeks and i think it'll it'll start to die down a little bit now um it was just very interesting because it's it remains really hard to work out what has gone on with all of this uh he gave an interview with the bbc this week uh where he said that he doesn't owe anyone an apology or doesn't feel like he owes anyone an apology um one thing that i did uh, note was uh, he got asked a direct question of whether or not he bribed the officers and I want to hear your, your input Cam on how legitimate you think this response is. His quote was in response to that, no for sure, as soon as I've seen the statement, it's just ridiculous <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's very much a non-answer that isn't it, it's like did you do it oh I mean, what are you even saying yeah, what? so crazy to see that <laughs> Oh, um, well, wow, that was a crazy... Um, yeah, I mean, the thing with the Harry Maguire, um, you know, the, the interview, it seemed to me, and again, evidence could come out and prove this completely wrong, but it seemed to me like he has got the raw end of the deal here and it's been made out to be more than it is. Um, what I would say is that alcohol was involved here, so there may have been things said or, you know, misinterpretations had between the Langbrow that Harry Maguire may have thought he didn't do, but did do, or so that so it might let it come out. Wow. But one of the things for me that's been interesting is almost like the lack of evidence. Like I can't help but feel if there was really a massive incident with a player of such a high profile as um as Harry Maguire, that there'd be a couple of videos doing the rounds on the internet and yet nothing, which obviously is not the legal basis of, you know, ah, there's no evidence, therefore. But um you know, we'll we'll have to wait and see what what comes out. You you don't know whether or not that's to do with, I guess, less people being around because of coronavirus, or people wearing face masks, so it's harder to identify people. So you don't immediately get your camera out to snap someone. I don't know. It, you're right, though. It is strange to see that. Um, but it's just weird because, you know, obviously I can understand personally. I can obviously understand if he tried to bribe someone because he thought his life was in danger and he claimed that he didn't realize that they were police officers but apparently one of the people that he was with as they you know it's hard it's unclear when exactly it was happening but he was saying stuff like f the police and obviously you don't say that unless you think it's the police that are right there um and uh, the other part was that apparently he tried to bribe the officers as he was getting taken into the station not outside, not beforehand. No. So it's all very murky. Um, yeah, I, I mean, this this is the whole thing for me. I mean, you kind of raised the the point there that I wanted to make as well, which is just like his story is that he was he thought he was getting kidnapped. So I can get there how maybe a little bit of confusion could have ended up with him being like, "Let me go, I'll give you money," and then it turns out they're they're policemen and they're sort of bringing it up, and he's going, "Oh no no no!" So so I can see how there could be a lot of crossed wires. Um, but the whole thing is just very, very suspect. Yeah, so, you know, I mean, you're right. I'm, I'm sure more evidence will present itself. And if he is completely innocent, then you really hope that this doesn't become a blotch on his record. And if he is innocent, you hope that it doesn't derail his captaincy or his England career. Well, what's interesting in terms of the England career, and there's a few uh, changes that have been made to the England squad since last week when, when it was announced, Um 
is that, as we discussed, he was named over the course of his trial and was then withdrawn from the squad after he, uh, his conviction, he, was, he was convicted. The conviction has now um, been overturned or suspended until, until the appeal um, is, is, is had, but Gareth Southgate hasn't put him back in the squad. Yeah, and I'm sure, you know, there'll, there'll just be an element of, like, you don't need to be in the lineup for these games. Just Just take time out, recover sort yourself out mm. you know he, yeah. he'll he'll still be in the plans i'm sure take time. a break harry just have some time to yourself maybe go out for a few drinks with some friends whatever <laughs> no wait no <laughs> <laughs> no harry um but speaking of, of england and calling up there have been some really interesting changes to the squad um perhaps none more so than one that happened just about half an hour before we started recording which is jack Grealish is finally in the squad He's back in, yeah. Um, this comes after two players have dropped out because of injury in the form of Harry Winks and who was it? Marcus Rashford. Yeah, um, Marcus Rashford with an so, ankle. Well, Marcus Rashford was. They clarified it was an ankle injury. They haven't said anything for Harry Winks. Have they just realised he's not a very good football player? <laughs> I mean, presumably they're, they're quite far behind everyone else if they haven't. Um, but uh, yeah, I think. Uh, Gareth Southgate said that he very much sees Jack Grealish as a winger predominantly, and mm-hmm. so presumably he's there to replace Marcus Rashford and not Harry Winks. Yeah, although I mean I think that's part of the good thing about um, one of the good aspects of, of Jack Grealish is that you can play him as a winger or you can play him as an attacking midfielder. It gives you a bit more flexibility. Um, and speaking of flexibility, um, two more of the players that got called up. One was Ainsley Maitland-Niles, who was called up after Arsenal's Community Shields win, which also happened on his birthday, which is a pretty good birthday, winning the Community Shield and then getting called up for your country for the first time. And uh, Wolves' Connor Cody. Uh, yeah, and Connor Cody, I think all of all three of these players, I think we can all agree that they've deserved their chance. Um, it really is just a case of there are so many exciting players that Gareth Southgate could choose from that even though someone like Bukayo Saka still hasn't had his chance yet, there really is the atmosphere at the moment that if he's deserving, he will get it. Yeah. Yeah, and, he's, and this, this is, you know, the first friendly in a while. It's, it's obviously these it's all these circumstances that have made the schedule very difficult. So if not now, could be the next time. Yeah, and, and you do also wonder, you know, with the omission of Harry Maguire, whether or not, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking over the last 20 years, the FA and the England setup handled things like John Terry, Ferdinand's incident really poorly in terms of who they chose to play. Mm-hmm. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if Gareth Southgate and, and members of the uh, structure of, of the FA are hoping that, you know, with these new players and this exciting generation coming through that they can maybe right some of the wrongs that they've done in the past and that they can turn over a new leaf. It seems like it. And it seems like, yeah, I feel like if you're an English player right now, as in not a player for England, but just a a player of um, the English nation, as it were, you you wouldn't be too put out by not being called up because it was very much like almost an old boys club in recent years where managers would just have their 23 and there would be barely any variation between competitions or, or friendlies. Every now and again, two or three people would be changed, but the core would always be the same. Um, For sure. And here, it, it does seem to change quite a bit between friendlies and, and competitions. It does indeed. Um, um, yeah, Saturday and Tuesday, when it all goes down. Exactly. Should be exciting be to see how it goes. And what see, yeah. else is exciting to see uh, is the transfer mill, which continues to spin at a rate of knots. Um, I just want to talk for a little bit about one move that might have flown under the radar a bit, as it doesn't involve any British clubs, but could be a sign of big change in world football. Um, and that was the signing of Weston McKenney by Juventus. Um, so this is a, a young American guy who has joined the Bianconeri on a loan deal from from Schalke and they have an obligation to buy him as well as the deal automatically becoming permanent if certain clauses are met. Um, and yeah, I, I'm just really interested to see, you know, Weston McKenney is, is an American, as I mentioned, and Americans have always been on the outer edge of top level football. We've had the odd player like Clint Dempsey or Landon Donovan make an appearance, but they've never really played or, or remained in top title challenging sides. Landon Donovan sure. was at loan at Bayern, but for six games, so not, you know, their, their storied spell. Um, and the obvious example that you can think of is Christian Pulisic over at Chelsea at the moment. He's the closest thing we've had to a, an American player 
being a, a starter and one of the better players in a top club. Um, but what's exciting is now, so Pulisic was the first one, and now it looks like there are more in the pipeline. Definitely. And yeah, it's it's a really, I guess in one sense, unsurprising trend because the amount of money that's flowed into football in America over the last 10 years has been, you know, growing uh, year on year. Mm. And, you know, it's it's no surprise that we're seeing these great players leaving academies, going to Europe where the football is the best, joining big sides, joining bigger sides as, as a result of their good performances. So, yeah, I mean, I think it definitely could be a second indication after Christian Pulisic that uh, the flow of, of talent from across the cha- um, the Atlantic is starting to uh, increase. Yeah, because we, we talked in a previous episode about obviously the players like Tyler Adams and why Americans are able to get to Germany quite easily because of the lax uh, immigration laws and the fact that you don't need a work permit if you're an athlete. You only need to be above 16, have a living wage and be uh, affirmed as a competent player. But this is like that next step. It's one thing to, to go over to Germany because of this sort of perfect storm of conditions and sort of try out your, your luck. But to then take that next step, whether it's going to a Chelsea or going to a Juventus, who, you know, this is a side who, one of the biggest sides in Europe. Um, so this could be, you know, our, our second sign of, um, you know, American dominance. And I, and I think it's really interesting because America, to me, have always been a bit of a sleeping giant. If you look at things like the Olympics, they're just such a dominant nation. It's always between them and China for the most gold medals. And I've always thought about them, and China for that matter, and thought, like, if you guys really get into football, this could be the next big thing for the, for the global community. Yeah, for sure. Um, definitely, as you said, yeah, it's, it's growing on a global stage. Um, and these countries like America, and even China, maybe in the future, um, have, have such a large pool of of people to pick from um that if they can continue to invest in in grassroots football and development of players then there's no reason why they can't become a a player on the world stage yeah and i I think it's very exciting because these things can have a knock-on effect as well if you know pulisic already has been doing really well for chelsea but if he has a a hallmark season next year as well as weston mckinney doing really well for juventus and, and the Americans who are currently playing for the bigger teams um, in Germany, all of a sudden, everyone might start looking that way. Much like, you know, as soon as we had, like, players from the Ivory Coast coming over and doing really well, everyone started looking at them. Or, 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 or you know, same thing for different African nations, like Ghana, for example. It seems to go in phases. Like, two or three players come out of a nation, do really well, and then all of a sudden the global communities got, got locked onto them. Yeah, and scouts get sent. And for sure, I mean, I think that for Juventus it's it's a bigger gamble than Pulisic to Chelsea in the sense that Wes McKenney is less proven at mm-hmm. a high level he's just had less less minutes less game time um has shown fewer glimpses of his talent and you know when when you look at Juventus's transfer record they pick up some amazing players they also pick up a lot of weird players Mm. Um, and so I do think that, yes, if it is a good positive signing long term, then I'm sure, you know, people are going to look towards America even more than they already are, but there's every chance that it might not go as well as everyone hopes. It might not, but I would say that it's it's interest. I think it's interesting and important that not only have they signed him, but he's the first signing of the Pirlo era. This is like a, a new look Juventus. They've just sacked their old manager, and they're they're looking to sort of build up a new club, you know, look after having been knocked out of the Champions League. And this is how they've decided to have set that in motion. And that would have definitely so been a conversation they've had at the yeah. club. And to go through with that suggests to me they rate him quite highly. Yeah, it's a good point. It's a good point. Um, in terms of other transfers, we have had quite a few exciting ones, both in progress and in, that have been completed in the Premier League. Um, Matt Doherty went from Wolves to Spurs, which is a really, really good reinforcement pickup for Spurs. Um, although maybe one that left them a little red in the face, as Doherty tweeted in the past about his love for Arsenal Football Club. Good times. Um so that was uh, maybe a little bit of an embarrassing moment for them. Spurs, of course, um, today actually have had the uh, Amazon uh, documentary released, All or Nothing, um, much like Man City had theirs. And I would, you would have to say that while Man City probably side a bit more with the all of All or Nothing, Spurs have gone for a bit of a nothing in recent years. <laughs> uh, yeah, so two ends of the spectrum in two uh, two documentaries there. It'll be interesting to one to watch, though. I think it's always fun to see 
I think definitely Jose Mourinho has like a the aura about him still, even if some of the the shimmer has gone in recent years. And I, I for one, am quite interested to see how he operates behind closed doors. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to to watch what he's like in the dressing room. I, I sort of almost have this idea of him like a Nicholson-esque figure smoking a cigarette as he paces up and down the dressing room and he's like barking things at players. Oh, absolutely. You hope so. You hope so. I, 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 whatever he does, I don't think Mourinho's going to disappoint. I, th- there's one thing that I think we can all expect from Mourinho and that's uh, that's a bit of drama and a bit of, um, a bit of flair. That is his selling point. Um... <laughs> there's there's going to be some explosions. But yeah, so so, yeah, so that was um, Doherty is going to be a great signing for them. I think yeah, he really strengthens that right hand side for them in a way that fits with their profile as a as a system. Yeah, he he definitely fits the Mourinho bill of like hardworking, good player and has a lot of talents, but doesn't necessarily have a lot of frills on his game. It's just like he's got the the fundamentals nailed on. Yeah, and you know, good defensively and good attacking. Uh, yeah, so the other one of the other ones that we had was um, a huge signing for Leeds, which was Rodrigo, um, and he's come over for a, a pretty sizable fee of uh, I think it was thirty five million pounds, which which could potentially twenty seven based... million pounds, thirty five euros. Yeah, sorry, thirty five million euros potentially rising based on on certain conditions, and it's you know Leeds coming straight into the league and looking like they want to make a, a, a case for themselves being one of the big boys again. Oh yeah, it's a it's a statement of intent for sure uh, for Bielsa's Leeds. Um... And, you know, you just got to hope that with with signings like this, it, it does just feel like make or break in the sense that they're putting a lot of their financial eggs in one basket. Um, and it looks like he, again, is going to be someone that will fit the, uh, you know, the, the side's tactical outfit. And if anyone has done their research, you know it's going to be Marcelo Bielsa. <laughs> Absolutely, he, he has. Um, but again, we were talking about Leeds a couple of weeks ago, and I wonder if their next move is going to be getting any Premier League experience in. Because these signings, it can go very, very well, and you know, Spanish striker comes in, scores a bunch of goals, or they could just come up and and kind of be bowled over by um, you know the, the teams that have had a bit more experience, if even if they don't look as good on paper. Yeah, I would say that Premier League experience is absolutely vital. So, you know, if you have a team that doesn't necessarily have a lot of Premier League experience and then you bring in a couple of foreign stars as well, that does not always lend itself to a, a positive... Yeah. And they're um, trying to get Ben White back at the moment from, from Brighton, who obviously spent the season on loan there, but that doesn't really count as Premier League sure. experience because I think almost all of his games were for Leeds. Well, exactly. And um, they recently had a, a, a second or third bid for Ben White rejected by Brighton and... He again like is very crucial to their defensive solidity. So, with him not coming back in, I think that is a is a real warning sign for me. I do also love just just as a sort of a bit of a tangent. I do also love the way that Leeds seem to perceive themselves as a club. Like they've come back into the Premier League, and I think they already just immediately think of themselves as one of the top six. Just the way they've like been doggedly pursuing Ben White, and they're like, "Why would he not want to come play for this club? We're much bigger than Brighton." And Brighton are like, "Hang on, guys, we've been here for a while." As Leeds just knock them aside. Well, I mean, yeah, it's funny to see, but also you know, I I definitely put Leeds in the same category as like Aston Villa as being historically and still considered today as one of the biggest clubs in in English football. Oh yeah, in terms of like, you know, achievements in 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 Premier League years gone past, they're one of the biggest, but I just think it's funny that they haven't been in the league for what was it, 16 years and that you just would not be able to tell that from the way the club seems to be acting, which personally I applaud. I think, you know, if you you only become champions by acting like champions and Leeds have got that in spades. Oh, for sure, you got to be ambitious and yeah, again, Marcelo Bielsa is the epitome of uh, kind of expectation and uh, big, big weight energy, like throwing throwing your body around. Yeah, exactly, and I think that's gonna it's gonna make for a very fun addition to the league next season. Um, United oh, are yeah. um, firing up the old financial machine again. Um, they're looking at yeah. maybe signing Donny Van Der Beek. See, I find this quite a weird one because yeah, it almost feels like a reaction to not being able to sign Jaden Sancho or, or a winger, Jack Grealish. Um, and instead they're going for what, for all intents and purposes, is an attacking midfielder, a centre-attacking midfielder. Yeah, it's not really the signing that they need at the moment. And also, I did think when I saw, because everyone was talking about how 
Van der Beek is one of those amazing players from the Ajax side. Ajax has kind of lost a bit of stock with me at the moment, ever since the performances of um, uh, De Ligt over at Juventus and um, I'm drawing a, drawing a blank on Frankie de Jong over, over at Barcelona, who both had like pretty muted debut seasons and it kind of feels like they were just flash in the pan rather than massive quality. Although that could just be their first season. They could, you know, turn around and have great seasons next year. Well, this is the thing. I mean, for any any club that performs well above their standing, like for a short amount of time, yes, some of the players are going to be flash in the pan and some of the players are going to be exceptional talents that get picked up. And oftentimes, you know, more than just the best players get picked up. I mean, I'm thinking Monaco, 2016-17. For, for like Mbappe, yes, amazing talent. Thomas Lamar has not exactly been the exciting player that Atletico Madrid hoped that he would be. And I think Premier League fans will know that Timo Bakayoko has not exactly been the player that Chelsea thought they were signing. Yeah, um, no, good good example. Another example... Um, God, oh wait, I just I had it on the top of my tongue and... And I've just forgotten again. Okay, we'll cut that out. Another example would be maybe Leicester, which is that, you know, for, for N'Golo Kante and Riyad Mahrez, both looking like really exciting players, um, Harry Maguire isn't necessarily an £85 million player, despite whatever's going on with him at the moment um, on, on the continent. And, you know, Danny Drinkwater for £30 million is daylight robbery. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say Chelsea sort of got the exact midfield pivot that Leicester used to win the league. And I think they've had quite disparate Chelsea careers. Angola Kante has been an amazing force for, for them, certainly at least for the first two seasons he was there. And Danny Drinkwater has been... Uh, he's turned up to training? <laughs> he, he does sometimes when he's not punching people in nightclubs. Yeah, so so players. yeah, that that was what I sort of thought with the whole Vander. It seemed almost like United hadn't got the memo that the Ajax thing hasn't been still as amazing as, as it was. And even you know this season, they've not looked as threatening as they did in that one amazing season when they were toppling you know the likes of Juventus and, and, and Real Madrid. So, but we'll see how that yeah, one works look, out. It's it's tough. I think the the main point is that these players that are exciting flashes in the pan. By which I mean, you know, they've shown glimpses of their talent, their obvious talent. Um, they're not necessarily ready to make a, a career-defining move that will change, you know, not only their country and language, but also complete like tactical profile of of their setup. So mm, that's very true. That yeah, it, no, it, it it is sometimes such a coin toss when these players go to different leagues and have looked amazing in a place where not only you know culturally and linguistically, but just everything they're all the creature comforts they have around them and their family and their friends. And then all of a sudden you're expecting them to reproduce the exact same, you know, talent in a country that they don't know, like the language or anyone there or, um, so yeah, no, it's, it's, it's definitely always a difficult transition, but maybe and, uh, uh, one you, last you don't know one. If, yeah, Delict might still prove himself to be a world-class center back. I actually am confident that he will prove that he is a very good center back again. And mm-hmm. Donny van der Beek is, he's 23 and, I would, I'm more concerned with the fact that he's not necessarily what Man United need, and as a result, might struggle there. But yeah, no, that's that, that, of, of all those players, it's true. Certainly for Frank De Jong and, and Delict, even if they haven't had the most amazing first seasons, it's not like you only have the one season to prove yourself. They might turn it around and adapt and be amazing. Um, but yeah, Van, van der Beek seems like a like an odd one. For sure, the the other exciting one is um, Hamas Rodriguez to Everton. Yeah, I was just going to say, Hamas Rodriguez to Everton is, is another one that just seems like a weird signing. And one for some reason, I really rate Hamas Rodriguez as a player, but for some reason, I, that move just reeks to me of like a flop. Do you think so? It's interesting. I, it really could go either way. I mean, any time a big player leaves a big club, it's either because they're not nearly as good as people think they are or because like the, the current club setup doesn't like them as a player or just yeah. wants them gone and I do feel like Tamas Rodriguez falls into the latter camp he's been touted for a move for a couple of years now he's never really been um, like loved by Real Madrid while he was there and yeah I, I which is weird to say because when he signed for them right off the back of that World Cup everyone was sort of murmuring like oh is this the guy who's going to nick the spotlight from Cristiano Ronaldo you know he's a young handsome guy he's got a big fan base established in South America already and then it just went the opposite direction 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but of course, he's linking up with uh, Ancelotti, who signed him for the third time. Signed him at Real Madrid, signed him again at Bayern, and is now Bayern, signing him yeah. for Everton. So that's one of those. Uh, <laughs> it's like that meme of like, who thought we thought we'd be here? Not me, because <laughs> they've gone from like these two massive European titans to a still fairly large club at Everton, but not quite the size of Real Madrid or Bayern. I mean, personally, I'm just excited to have him in the Premiership. I think, as well like you, I think he's a great player. Um, I'm a big, big fan of his, and I do love the the Ancelotti Everton energy. That just, I don't know, it, it in the same way that Bielsa at Leeds, you're like, this is a really huge manager. Yeah, you love to have it. Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I hope it works out for him if he does go, because I would love to see him play, and he's a fantastic player to watch. But there's just something about, I, th- I think it's just to do with like the way Everton have had signings. Everton have had disaster signing after disaster signing recently. Um, and so maybe, yeah, maybe this is the one that will change their fortunes. In the transfer window. Pardon? Is is they seem to just be very naive in the transfer window, in, yeah. in the sense that like Arsenal just ring them up every year and it's like, hey, how do you feel about Theo Walcott? And it's like, oh my god, Theo Walcott! And like <laughs> Arsenal just chuckling to themselves down the phone, like, hey, <laughs> you want to buy Alex Iwobi for forty mil? And they're like, okay. <laughs> and it's like, oh, let's pick up Aaron Lennon for. Do you know what I mean? It just they they seem they seem quite immature in the sense that they like latch on to big names, much like I guess like David Moyes at Man U. Mm. He was like, I have to have Juan Mata, Marouane Fellaini, yes please. Without yeah, exactly. If you've played at uh, like this club, then all of a sudden they, they they love you, which which just seems weird. But maybe maybe Rodriguez will change their their fortunes and and be the signing they wanted. Um, I think that is about the time we've got for this week. That is indeed. So, uh, Rupert, thanks as always for chatting. Thank you, Cam. And we'll continue to follow all the stories as they unfold and catch up with you again next week. Thanks for listening, everyone. Cheers, guys. Bye-bye. Armchair Analyst was recorded remotely by Cameron MacDonald and Rupert Meadows. The album artwork was provided by our good friend Amschel.